Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 2. We took some time off of going through the book of John with our Advent season. And while we remember that Christ came in the flesh over 2,000 years ago, we also remember He is still coming again. And we rejoice in that. And so it was a joy to celebrate Advent season together. Now we get back to the book of John and plow ahead. And what better way to uh, enter into a new year than getting back to the book of John with something I believe so important for us today as we think about 2024 and what lays ahead of us and how thankful we are that we have God's word. We go back to time and time and time again. That whatever was in 2023 and whatever is ahead in 2024, we can hold fast to God's word. Because not only does it reveal to us God, it always steers us to what is most important, what is most necessary in our lives. It steers us to Jesus Christ. So now that you've Got nice and settled in your seat. Would you stand with me again for one moment as we read out of reverence and respect God's word. John chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. And after I finish verse 12, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Together we will say, thanks be to God because we're thankful. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This 
The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, drive out, dispel, and melt any sinful fear that might be in our hearts. And fill us with a right fear of you. Break up the soil of our hearts this morning that we might receive your word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are here today worshiping our Savior moments before the commencement of a new year. What is your response when you think about turning another chapter in life, bringing in a new year? Are you indifferent? You've seen so many years come and go that it makes no difference. It's just another day. It's just another year. It will just be more of the same old, same old. The monotony of life will continue. The mundaneness will not subside. You will be stuck in the rut that you've been in for another year. Maybe indifferent and pessimistic? Or is there any anticipation with the start of a new year? You're looking forward to a new beginning, a fresh start perhaps. You are looking forward to what this year holds for you and for your life. There is optimism, there is hope, and eager anticipation for what lies ahead. Your attitude could go with this saying, out with the old and in with the new. Good riddance to 2023, hello 2024. I don't know where your attitude or where your thinking might fall as we begin 2024. But might I suggest we modify that statement out with the old and in with the new and align it with what scripture says. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Might this be our way of thinking as we begin a new year? Might this be the truth from God's word that informs and directs our attitudes, our affections, and our wills? This verse is also helpful in directing our our thoughts as we embark on the next section of scripture here in this gospel according to John. Many divide John into two parts. The first part, the first 12 chapters is referred to as the book of signs. And then chapters 13 through 20 is referred to as the book of glory or the book of exaltation. Finally, chapter 21 serves as an epilogue to the book. Here in chapter 2, we begin to see why this portion of, of John is called the book of signs. And it also has a subsection. So we have Chapters 1 through 12, this this book of signs, and now we begin a subsection within that, verses 2 through 4, and at the beginning here, we're in this town of Cana, 
And at the end of chapter 4, guess where we are? Cana again. So this is what some refer to as the Cana cycle. In chapters 2, 3, and 4. To help us be on a correct course, we need to remember those words again from the Apostle Paul. The old has passed away and the new has come. That actually serves as a great theme for these chapters and what we'll see happen in these chapters. How does this happen? How does the old pass away and how does the new come? Well, what is John telling us? How does the old pass away and how does the new come? Well, the old passes away and the new comes because Jesus Christ has come. His person, his ministry, his work. That's what's doing away with the old and is what's bringing in the new. Jesus arrives here on the scene in Cana of Galilee, the very beginning of his public ministry. And what does he want us to know with his arrival? It's a new day. And if you know who Jesus is, and if you know his identity and receive his identity as true, you will be welcomed into this new day and you will be part of it and you will rejoice in it. Filled with hope because it is a new day. Filled with hope because the glory of Christ that you will see in this new day. Jesus is establishing a new day and this new day anticipate, anticipates, it expects, it looks forward to certain truths that have an impact upon us and how we live our lives. This is revealed to us in this account of Jesus turning the water into wine. With this sign, we see who Jesus is. We see what Jesus will do. We'll see what Jesus does. So what does this inauguration of this new day anticipate? Well, if you have your bulletin, you can follow along with these points. Number one, Jesus establishes a new day that anticipates transformation. Jesus establishes a new day that anticipates transformation. How do you react to that word, transformation? Is that a good word in your vocabulary or a bad word? I think for many people it can be a scary word, a fearful word. When we think of transformation, we immediately think of change. The idea of change in our life can cause a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. We want things to stay the same. We don't want things to change. We're comfortable with the way things are. We've learned to live with how things are. Don't rock the boat. Don't let there be any change. Don't make things more difficult than they need to be. Just leave things the way that they are. Imagine saying that to Jesus. There is one thing that we need to understand about being a Christian. The core of Christianity and the core of what it means to be a Christian is change. It is the economy we live in. 
Being left the same, leaving things the way that they are, is not an option for the Christian. I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to change. Well, then you don't really want to be a Christian. And while we say that at the core of Christianity is change, this change is built upon a God who doesn't change, a Savior, Jesus Christ, who doesn't change. But we change, and our need to change is based upon His holy and unchanging nature. And so we don't resist change. In fact, we welcome change. We want change. We pray for change. We ask one another, how might we change for the better, to be more like Christ? When was the last time you did that? Dear brother, dear sister, you would have someone in your life that you would say, is there some way I need to change? Is there a blind spot? You know when you're driving, you check your blind spots? At least hopefully you do. Now sometimes our cars have all of these new gadgets on them where you maybe don't check your blind spots. You have a blind spot in your life. Do you have someone, brother or sister in your life, another Christian? You'd say, how can I change? How do I need to change? What needs to change? And then, <laughs> then you'd be willing to listen to that and change. We are those as Christians who have been changed and are transformed by God's grace. We are those being tra transformed from one degree of glory to another. And while sometimes that change might almost be imperceptible to us, do you ever think like that? Do you ever think, am I, am I changing, Lord? Am I, am, I, am I being transformed? Sometimes it seems like I take one step forward and three steps back and it seems like I'm never making any progress in my Christian life of being transformed, there's good news. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If he began that work of change in you, even though sometimes it might seem imperceptible, you don't even see it. The good news is God is working. God is changing God is making you more like Christ, and he will finish the work that he began in you. If we haven't been changed by the Lord, we remain dead in our trespasses and sin. When you read this account of Jesus transforming the water into wine, on the very face of it, we have to admit what I just said. This is an account about transformation. At the very least, water is transformed into wine. But there is more to this transformation, as we will see. The scene is set. We are at a wedding in Cana, in the region known as Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, as well as Jesus and his disciples who had been invited. Some think that this maybe was a close relative of Jesus, close relation of some, Someone that was getting married. We don't know that for sure. But I want us to notice something interesting from the very beginning of this account. 
Notice, in this account, what proper names are used? What proper names do you see in these verses here, these 12 verses? Jesus is the only proper name. No other names are given. Mary's not given. What is she? She's the mother of Jesus, right? We also don't know who the bride is or the bridegroom is. We're not told the name of the master of the feast. Why? Why are we only given the name of Jesus? Because Jesus is the focal point. He is the main character. He is the one to whom all of the attention should be drawn to. And if we begin to focus on someone or something other than Jesus in this account, we will get it all wrong. And this principle applies not to just John 2, 1 through 12, but to the whole of God's word. When Jesus is with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he begins to open to them all of the scriptures from the law, from the prophets, from the writings, and he says, all of it is about me. I'm the focal point. There's a problem, however, here at the wedding. By the time we get to verse 3, the wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus relays this problem to Jesus. There is no wine. Now, we might think, What's the big deal? Just find some other drink. Something else to give the guests. But the absence of wine during the wedding feast would have brought shame and embarrassment upon the groom. Some even say that such a problem could have led to the groom being taken to court by the attendees of the wedding. Think about that. We're going to sue you because the wine ran out. We thought today is a court-happy culture. It's no small problem then. This is a major problem. And there's another thing. A lack of wine is a sign of barrenness. When the wine flows, it means great abundance. But when there was no wine, when the wine dries up, it is like the land is a desert, a waste, completely desolate. These are not connotations you want at your wedding. <laughs> Barrenness? An absence of life? No wine was a living parable for the spiritual barrenness of Judaism and the people that Jesus had come to. Spiritual barrenness means spiritual deadness. What was going on at the wedding pointed to a greater problem. There was a spiritual famine in the land. The mother of Jesus turns to Jesus for help, but Jesus responds, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus addresses his mother as woman. To our ears, that might sound like a term of disrespect. While it might not have the familial, familial closeness that we would expect from a son to a mother, Jesus is by no way demeaning his mother. Maybe we could think of it as ma'am, like 
you're from the South, maybe you say ma'am to people. It's still a sign of respect. Jesus' response, though, to his mother demonstrates he is not and will not be motivated by human concern. His ministry is one of complete and utter freedom where no human advice, no human agenda, no human manipulation will bear any weight on what he does or when he does it. Jesus is bound to his heavenly Father's will. He will obey him in all things. And Jesus' hand cannot and will not be forced. But still, his mother turns to the servants and says to them what? Do whatever he tells you to do. We recognize a trust and a faith in the mother of Jesus towards her son. Now it's still up in the air. There's still a question mark. We don't know that she expected a miracle, something supernatural. She could have only been saying this in the sense of Jesus was resourceful. But what Mary says to the servants is actually an echo that we've heard in the Bible before. Go back to Genesis chapter 41 for a moment. The very beginning. Genesis 41, verse 55. <clears throat> Genesis 41, 55. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Now, what was going on in Egypt? There was a famine. Because Joseph had trusted the Lord and listened to the Lord, Joseph had been preparing for this famine that was to come upon the land of Egypt. And now they were in the throes of the famine and the people wanted bread And so they go to Pharaoh and they say, Pharaoh, we need sustenance. We need need bread. We're in a famine here. And he says, go to Joseph. And whatever Joseph says to do, you do. Joseph was the one who helped alleviate the famine. What was Jesus going to do? He was going to alleviate, change, and transform the spiritual famine that had taken hold of the people. How is Jesus going to save amid spiritual famine during barrenness while having no wine? Well, look at what he does. He orders the servants to fill up the six stone water jars that are at the house. These are massive water pots, each holding, it says here, 20 to 30 gallons. So when all are filled, it meant there was between... 120 to 180 gallons of water. And what were these stone water jars used for? They were designed for the Jewish rites of purification. These were filled, it says, to the brim. That is, up to the top. This water would have been used for the washing of hands, not merely for pragmatic reasons, but to remind the people that they were to be clean, pure, and holy before the Lord. Unclean people could not be in the presence of the Lord. And were not even to be in the presence of other people who were clean. 
So these large stone jars were filled to the brim, just as Jesus had said. Had said. And now look at what it says here. Verse 8. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. There's things that you have to weigh when you are preaching and teaching God's word. And some of those things are saying things sometimes that are different. What I'm about to say might sound different to you, but I believe it to be true because I believe it's what the text says. I want to be led by the text, what God's word says, not by what man says. So this might not accord to the flannel graph that you saw in Sunday school, but I think it's better. <laughs> I think it's infinitely better. Take your finger, if you have your Bible there, and put it. Verse 8, now draw, it says there. That word draw, put your finger underneath that word draw. What does that word mean? That word exclusively means to draw water from a well. So, I think here's the picture. Jesus told the servants to fill up these six stone water jars to the brim with water. And then he says, now, just as you drew water to fill up those water jars, now go back to the well and draw some water again. And take that water that you draw from the well and give it to the master of the feast. And so the servants do that. They draw water from the well, and it's transformed and changed. How it happens, I don't know. This is supernatural. This is miraculous. And they give that water to the master of the feast, and he tastes the water transformed into wine. I think, usually, people think of the water being drawn from the pots, that that's the water that's changed. I think if we say that this word draw means to draw from a well, it's actually this water from the well that's being changed and being given to the master of the feast. Now, there's another question that arises. Well, why then the six stone jars? Why are they even there? Why are they a part of the story if, if they're not drawing the water out of those stone jars? In fact, some would argue that maybe this interpretation would hinder and limit this kind of application that filling up these water jars and turning the water into wine that Jesus was changing 120 to 180 gallons of water. Look at the abundance of water that Jesus turned into wine. But I believe these water jars are here for a different reason. Remember what these jars are used for. They are used for the Jewish law and custom regarding purification. But now, what did Jesus say? Fill these up to the top. Fill them up to the top, to the brim. Why? Because these water parts had run their course. 
They were no longer needed. They had fulfilled their purpose. Now Jesus, the Messiah, had come who would inaugurate a new day and a new order. Christ, by establishing this new day, gives something better. No longer the old, but the new. No longer do you need the Jewish rites of purification. Why? Because the Messiah has come who is going to purify you completely. And if you want the abundance of water turned to wine from those jars, guess what? It's better because what's more abundant than drawing water from a well that's turned to wine? Think of the abundance of that. With those jars, guess what? You eventually still run out. But drawing the water from the well, you never run out. This is a new day. You don't have to hold on to those old law anymore. You don't need those old jars. You need the new wine of Christ. For all the purification you need comes from him. Wine now drawn from the well to serve at the messianic banquet. Wine that will be flowing from a well so that people will no longer be spiritually barren but would receive spiritual life. And with this abundance of life comes spiritual joy. This is the transformation anticipated by this new day. People who are no longer bound by the law because Jesus redeems those who were under the law. Is this the kind of transformation you know in your life. No longer under the law. I'm under Christ. There's abundant joy there, abundant life there. He is the well that I'm drawing from. It's a new day. Jesus also, secondly, establishes a new day that anticipates glorification. Jesus establishes a new day that anticipates glorification. This brings us to verse 10. <clears throat> the Apostle John is masterful in how he writes his book. He is masterful. Because this verse here is the punchline, is, is like the punchline to a joke. This last line, uh, uh, chapter 10, Last line, I mean in the sense that this is the last quoted line from this uh, event. Whenever a biblical writer quotes words, it's important. But here, this last line, so important. The master of the feast has tasted the wine that was turned to wine from the water. He calls the bridegroom and he says to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is a statement that's dripping with irony. The, the bridegroom is commended for not being like any ordinary bridegroom. What does the ordinary bridegroom do? Well, they serve the good wine first. When the people have become intoxicated and their senses dulled, then they serve the cheaper, inferior, poorer wine. The focus here, though, is on the goodness of the wine. The good wine has been saved until now. The good wine is flowing freely towards the end of the feast. And it shows that the good wine will flow freely for the world when Jesus' hour finally comes. 
Jesus is the good wine that has been reserved until now. The new wine is a, t- is a symbol of salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said to his mother. My hour has not yet come. What does this hour refer to? We'll see it again in John over and over. That It refers to when Christ will be glorified through his suffering and through his death and through his resurrection. My hour has not yet come. But it is coming. And for you to anticipate that glorification, I'm going to give you this sign. When that hour comes, people will drink and drink and drink of the good wine of Jesus Christ. The wine will flow freely and people will drink freely. The new day of the Messiah will be lavished with joy. Go back just for a moment to Isaiah 25. This is what Jason read uh, read for us this morning. But I want to go back to it for a moment. Because why? why? This wine, this good wine, should be associated with joy. But why? I think it says this very explicitly to us in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples... Here's a glorious, the gloriousness of the gospel, right? There's this mountain, and all the people, what, are going to experience this feast of rich food. What does it say there? A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like good wine to me. And then what? And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations, what is it that this one is going to swallow up? Verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. That is the joy that flows from this well of fine, good wine. It is the abolition of death. Death will be swallowed up. How is death swallowed up? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's here in the cross and resurrection that the supreme glory of Christ is seen. And even his disciples see this in this sign. Do you, do you notice Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. Here it is, Jesus was manifesting his glory right before the eyes of his disciples and they saw the sign and the sign elicited in them what the signs of Jesus should elicit faith, belief. This is the very end of John, what John says in John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, these signs are written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. 
Here it is. The disciples catch a glimpse of Christ's manifested glory, and they believe. They don't just believe. What does it say? They believed in him. They didn't believe in the miraculous supernatural sign. The sign was merely a pointer. These signs are significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that can only be perceived with the eyes of faith. And that's what these disciples are experiencing. They're experiencing that this sign pointed beyond itself to a greater spiritual reality, and that reality let them see the glory of Jesus. This is fulfilling what John had already said in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. We've seen his glory here in the turning of the water into wine. Do you see the glory of Jesus? Is your faith in him whose identity is revealed in this sign? Finally, number three, Jesus establishes a new day that anticipates restoration. Jesus establishes a new day that anticipates restoration. If you want another word for that word restoration, you could also put in there new creation. So Jesus establishes a new day that anticipates restoration or new creation. You can use those interchangeably. Look at the very beginning now of our text this morning. John says this, on the third day. There's been a running sequence of days that John has been following since chapter 1, verse 19. This sequence of days culminates in the transformation of the water into wine. And if we were to go back and count the sequence of days, we would find that they add up to Seven days. This is the first week of Jesus' ministry. Why does John give us a week? Why seven days? I think because he's echoing the creation week. Remember, God created all that he created. How long was that? Culminates with the Sabbath, seven days. Just as John starts his gospel with, in the beginning, so now he has given us this week to show that all that Jesus does, he does to bring about this new creation, new life, restoration. And think about this. What was a culminating event in the creation week? Creation of man and woman. And what does, what does God do there with man and woman when he creates them? He brings them together. Looks like there's a wedding in that creation week. Well, what do you have here at the culmination of this week? You have a wedding. Just as the ordinance of marriage was intrinsic to the first creation, Jesus ushering in the new age foretold in the Old Testament begins here with a marriage. 
It's an age of renewal. It's an age of restoration. It's the age they had been waiting for. Go back in your Bibles here for a second to the book of Hosea. End of the book of Hosea. Chapter 14, verse 7. Talking about this returning to the Lord, this restoration day. Hosea 14, 7. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Hmm. Interesting there, isn't it? What happens in this day of restoration? Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Going through these prophets here for a second. So Hosea, then look at Joel. Just one book over. <clears throat> Hosea, at the end of Joel 3, verse 18. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. What happens in this day of restoration? Mountains are dripping with Sweet wine. We'll go over in Amos now. The very end of Amos. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair, repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God." What does this day of restoration look like? It looks like this flowing of good wine. This is not merely the restoration we look forward to in the future, although we do. But it's also the restoration we know now. You remember that verse from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17? I skipped the first part of it, didn't I? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We, we, dear Christians, get to revel in that day because of Christ. We get to rejoice in this new day because it's the new day of Christ. We believe in him because his glory has been revealed through the cross and through his resurrection. We can maybe sing then, with a slight change, this song. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for me in Christ. I'm feeling good. <laughs> and as we come to the Lord's table, we remember this is a day we look forward to even as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 29. There he is instituting the Lord's Supper. 
And talking about this cup that he is giving to his disciples, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If you need a, a bread or a cup, Eric's in the back there, he will get you one of those. But this morning as we come to this table, as we think about the bread which represents the body of Christ, as we drink the cup which represents the blood of Christ, would we look forward? We will look forward to the wedding that is to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the day when we drink that wine new with Jesus Christ, the day when the kingdom will be finally and fully consummated in all of its glory, and we will be there. Not needing sun, not needing moon. Why? Because God and the Lamb are our light. So let us think back to the cross. Let's think back to the sacrifice that was made to purify us of our sins, to clothe us in pure garments, and let us rejoice and look forward to the day that is to come when we will feast with Christ in glory. I don't know what's going to happen in 2024. But I know that Christ is coming again. And I know that there is a great feast that awaits us in the future. Maybe that will be 2024. I pray so. But I, I tell you one thing. I'm going to look forward to that day right now. I'm going to look forward to that day because that day is certain and secure. No one and nothing can take that day away from me or anyone who is in Jesus Christ. So this table is for those who believe in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us around this table. If you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, think about these things that we've talked about today. Think about the abundant life that you can know in Christ. He forgives. He purifies. He doesn't say, clean yourself up and come to me. He says, come to me. Come to me. I will make you clean. I will give you life. I will remove the spiritual desert wasteland of your life, and I will make it blossom like an oasis. And then we go to that well. We drink. We drink, we drink, we drink. If you take a moment to meditate on the body of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, that was there nailed to the cross. Take a moment, meditate on that.
Father, forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us remember the body of our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Take and eat. And as you prepare the cup, take a moment to think about the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize the precious blood that flowed from mercy's side to cleanse us, to make us whole, to wash us clean. Let us remember the price paid for our salvation and let us look forward to the day when we will drink this anew with Christ. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Take and drink. 